Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. A recent survey of U.S. foreign policy reveals a startling change. For the first time in nearly five decades, a majority of Republicans say the United States should stay out of world affairs rather than play an active role in it. The Chicago Council survey conducted by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs found that the shift was led primarily by so-called Trump Republicans, the 47% of Republicans who hold a very favorable view of Donald Trump. Now, debates about America's role in the world are hardly new, nor is the argument that Washington would be better off focusing on domestic issues. What seems new, however, is the concentration of people who hold those views, not only in one party, but specifically within the pro-Trump wing of the GOP. I wanted to explore this week how that change has taken place, and with that, what impact it's already had and will have on U.S. foreign policy. Well, my guest this week is Ivo Dalder. He's the CEO of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, which conducted the survey. He's also a former U.S. ambassador to NATO. So we also spent some time looking at the state of the war in Ukraine. Ivo's really one of the best analysts to read and listen to on this topic. As always, if you like the podcast, rate us, share it with a friend or try us on video live on foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to ask questions too, as you know. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Okay, let's dive in. Evo Dalder, welcome back. Hey, Ravi, it's wonderful to be here. Great as always. So let's begin with a study your team conducted. Republicans have usually been more likely than Democrats to favor an active role abroad. And your surveys have consistently proven that out. This year, there's a change. Explain that. Well, there's been uh, two kinds of changes. One is a little slower. That is, Republicans have increasingly, since about 2016, become more and more skeptical uh, about the United States playing an active role in world affairs. Uh, and more and more favorable for staying out of world affairs. This is the question we've been asking for 50 years. And in fact, Gallup has been asking since the 19, uh, 1940s. But something bigger happened just uh, in the last survey, which we did uh, late last year, which was that the first time ever since we asked that question, more Republicans wanted to stay out of world affairs than play an active role uh, in world affairs. And that's never happened before. So you have this secular change over time in the last decade or so of Republicans becoming more and more, let's say, isolationist vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis Democrats. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, this major shift. Uh, that is happening uh, in the party on the question of whether to stay involved or not. Uh, and that major shift can really be explained, and that's what the study tried to do, 
by one part of the Republican Party. So what we did is we divided the Republican responses between those who had a very favorable view of Donald Trump, and we called those Trump Republicans, and those who had a somewhat or even unfavorable view uh, of Donald Trump, and we called those non-Trump Republicans. About 47% of the Republican respondents in our survey are Trump Republicans and 53% non-Trump Republicans. So breaking up, maybe 50-50. And then if you look at these questions, the gap becomes uh, really significant. So only 40% of Trump Republicans just think about that. 40% want the United States to play an active role in the world. 52% of non-Trump Republicans are still uh, in favor of that. In fact, a majority of non-Trump Republicans want the United States to remain actively involved in the world, just as Republicans overall have long done. So that's where it is. It's, it's all in this change within the party, uh, uh, as well as in the party writ large. But it's really the change within the party that is driving this. So that's what the data shows. And I'm wondering if you're able to explain why these changes might be taking place, not just for the Republican Party at large, but also this specific group of so-called Trump Republicans. Well, uh, the data doesn't give you the answer to that, but but we, you know, a larger qualitative uh, analysis of, of what's going on in the country does give you uh, some views. So when you look at the American electorate writ large over the last uh, 80 years or so, or certainly the 50 years that we've been uh, been looking at these data, it, it's been split about two-third, one-third between those who believe the United States should be actively engaged and those who should uh, uh, who believe uh, that the United States should not be actively engaged. But that core of the, let's call it the isolationist uh, uh, American uh, core, tended to be actually more democratic than Republican and more independent than either Democratic or Republican. And what's, what has happened is that that core has become increasingly Republican uh, in terms of its voting preference. So it isn't that isolationism is growing in the, in the, in the country writ large, uh, although it's shifting a bit. Uh, as it has over time, just because of the way the world is is, is uh, evolving. It's really that a particular core has been mobilized. Uh, people who, uh, who feel left behind, who worry about immigration, uh, who are less and less worry, uh, concerned about what's happening in, in other countries and more and more concerned about what's happening in our own country, whether it goes under Ukraine versus the border or whatever uh, uh, way you want to talk about it in policy terms. But that that group of people which have existed but tended to be dispersed between the parties is now concentrated and frankly has been mobilized by Donald Trump. And, and you cannot really explain any of this without focusing on Donald Trump and his singular focus on a foreign policy and what he calls an America first foreign policy, uh, what others might call an America alone uh, or America disengaged uh, foreign policy. He has been able to mobilize this longstanding, more isolationist part of the American electorate and, uh, and bring them into the Republican fold and that is, I think, one of the things that's happening on Capitol Hill. It's what, what is happening in, in the country writ large when it comes to the kinds of issues that uh, that you mentioned in your introduction, whether it's Ukraine or, or support for alliances or indeed American leadership abroad. And one of the interesting things in that survey is that there seems to be less interest in, say, Ukraine or the Middle East or alliances. But then 
these same Trump Republicans think that U.S. leaders are not paying enough attention to the U.S.-Mexico border or to U.S.-China competition or to Iran's nuclear program. Can you explain that? I mean, how are these issues that different from, say, Ukraine or the Middle East? Well, just just listen to what Donald Trump talks about when he talks about uh, uh, these kinds of issues. The number one issue he raises is the border, and he did that when he came down the golden escalator in Trump Tower in 2015 and railed against uh, against rapists and, and other people coming into our country. That was in 2015. He still does the same thing every day. And so to focus on the border is very much uh, one that uh, that Trump has has made his signature initiative. Uh, in fact, so much so that he doesn't want to solve the issue uh, uh, because he wants to keep it for uh, for the election. When there was a bipartisan bill which was focused on only on border security, never done before, but we always had a bill that looked at immigration reform and border security. This was just border security, a Senate bill that was negotiated by one of the most conservative Republican senators, uh, Senator Lankford from, from Oklahoma. Uh, Trump said, don't vote on it because I need the issue for the election. Uh, so that's one reason. Uh, China is the bugaboo of, uh, of most Americans, but certainly of the Republican Party. In fact, those who are still interested in engaging uh, with the world now are arguing that we can't afford to focus on Ukraine. We need to focus on China. That was the message that J.D. Vance, the senator from Ohio, brought to Munich at the security conference. He said, we just can't afford to do what we need to do to support Ukraine while at the same time focusing on deterring and, if necessary, defeating China and, or, or the Chinese Communist Party, as, as, as they like to, uh, to put it. And that's something that Trump talks about uh, as well in terms of trade and, 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 and other issues. And then Iran, uh, remember, there was a deal that uh, the United States negotiated with Iran and other countries in Europe uh, to uh, to sort of halt the nuclear program and to to lengthen the time between the moment it would break out of the deal and the moment it would have a nuclear weapon that was agreed by under the Obama administration in 2015 and and Trump ran against that uh, in 2016 and uh, as soon as he had the chance he walked away from that deal uh, and so these are three major issues the border China Iran nuclear weapons that are top of uh, Donald Trump's worldview about how to deal with it. We'll do it alone. We won't do it with allies. We will do it through force uh, and, and sanctions and, and tariffs and building walls and, and, and creating gates uh, uh, to, uh, to prevent people from coming in. So it's not surprising that a core of the Republican Party that has been mobilized by Donald Trump would look at those three issues as the three that uh, they think need more attention, while other issues that Donald Trump doesn't talk about, whether it's Ukraine or strengthening our alliances or, or, or opening up uh, uh, markets uh, overseas, that those get less uh, attention and less support. But Ivo, it seems to me that the through line um, across all of these issues is basically what Trump is talking about based on what you're saying, and less a broader sense of, you know, this is what America's priorities need to be because of X, Y, or Z reasons. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think an overwhelming majority of Americans uh, uh, still support aid to Ukraine, are strongly supportive of our alliances, NATO included, uh, and uh, believe that the Americans should, uh, should engage in the world writ large. Uh, you know, it's a little less today than it was in, in years past on all those issues, but mainly because of one thing, because the Trump Republicans are pulling away and pulling down 
the overall support numbers. And and they are Trump Republicans because Trump mobilized. Them. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and without Donald Trump, you wouldn't have to. So I think it's very important to understand that what's happening is not some kind of secular change, that America is becoming more isolationist as a whole, or that America wants to retreat from the world, which is how we see it. No, there is one major political force in this country, led by a singular individual uh, who has been able to mobilize a movement. Not that that sentiment didn't exist, but it wasn't a salient. It wasn't, it wasn't mm. used as a means to mobilize uh, political power. Uh, and uh, and it is now. That's why it's it, it's getting more attention. But if you ask question, the simple question, do you think America should continue to provide military aid to Ukraine? Over sixty percent. The last poll that the council did a couple uh, just a week ago was sixty-one percent of Americans still believe that. That's that's uh, uh, three out of five Americans still believing that we should provide um, uh, uh, aid to uh, to Ukraine. There were seventy senators, and if you actually count it right, there's 73 senators who uh, favored uh, aid to Ukraine in the last vote. Um, three uh, Democrats voted against it, not because of Ukraine, but because of the Israel part of the package. Uh, and if you put the vote up in, in on Capitol Hill, you have an overwhelming majority in the House uh, in favor of Ukraine aid as well. Um, so I think it's a mistake to think that the country as a whole is becoming more uh, isolationist, that it wants to retreat from responsibility, that it doesn't understand that the United States benefits from engaging in the world and, in fact, leading uh, uh, around the world. I think most Americans get it. It just happens to be that a major political force in our country is mobilizing in the opposite direction, and that is the issue that we need to uh, need to deal with. And the person at the head of that force um, could potentially even be in the White House uh, within a year. I have some terrific uh, questions, very thoughtful questions coming in from our subscribers, and I want to put a few of them to you. Andrew Whiting asks, to what extent is this skepticism towards involvement in overseas conflicts a reflection of changing demographics with the U.S. population becoming more diverse and millennials reaching positions of influence? Or do you think it's mostly a reflection of U.S. citizens being tired of becoming the world's policemen? Well, I think, uh, uh, I mean, demographic data demonstrates that there isn't really a lot of difference uh, among different dem- demographics on the overall view. They are pretty representative of the overall view of the United States. Uh, it is always the case that younger voters uh, and younger people tend to have uh, a, a slightly more isolationist, less engaging view of the world than older p- p- people, but that's been the case. And it turns out that people who were young and were more isolationist over time became more and more willing to engage in the world. I mean, the Vietnam generation clearly uh, didn't believe that uh, engaging uh, uh, in the world, particularly the, in the way we were doing in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, was the right way. Well, that's not a baby booming, uh, baby, that is the baby boom generation. And they are the, the generation that is most uh, willing to uh, to uh, have a U.S. leadership role in the world. Um, so it, it's partly uh, something that is that happens in, in the way society and people move. Uh, I, I really do believe that ultimately it, it has more to do with 
uh, what has happened in the world. I mean, if you are a millennial, you look back at the last 20 years uh, of American engagement. You've been engaged in, in, in two major wars, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, both uh, uh, you know, failures in in, uh, in 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 extraordinary ways. Afghanistan, we spent twenty years, spent uh, a, a trillion dollars, only to have the same government back in power after twenty years that uh, that we had ousted at the beginning. In Iraq, we went to war in order to uh, remove Saddam Hussein and got Iran uh, to be our uh, our bigger enemy in, in in that part of the world. We had a financial crisis in, in 2008 and 2009, which uh, touched many Americans deeply, uh, younger Americans in particular. Uh, we had the, the election of Donald Trump, which many young uh, people did not uh, see as a shining moment for, uh, for our country. And we had COVID as a pandemic. So you look back, if you're 40 years old, you look back at, at, at what the world looked like as an American, and it doesn't always look, uh, look, look very positively. And that will have an impact on how you think about things, quite apart from your, from your uh, ethnic or, 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 or other uh, background. Uh, but ultimately, uh, even in those, uh, those age cohorts, support for American engagement remains stronger than opposition. Mm, fascinating. Um, another subscriber question, Edward Goldstein asks, what criteria we should use to distinguish between a vital national interest and overreach? So put another way, given finite resources, but seemingly infinite good reasons to intervene in given situations, he says, moral, economic, geopolitical, national security, anything else, how should we be making those kinds of decisions today? So it's a, an age-old question that scholars in international relations and, and others, uh, practitioners of, of American foreign policy and national security policy, have been uh, dealing with uh, in, in a, uh, for a very, very long time. Um, uh, the, the, the fundamental presumption of American engagement in the world uh, it may not always have been true, but it is a presumption, uh, is that engaging is not a, is not a zero-sum game. It's a positive-sum game. Hmm. That uh, by engaging in the world and working together with uh, states that are like-minded, that are friendly, that share our values, uh, we can actually achieve much more uh, than not engaging in the world and not working with them. And and in that sense, that engagement is a positive sum outcome, not a uh, not a a, a a negative sum outcome. Which what does that mean? It means that. You shouldn't. You can't just look at what are the resources the United States brings to a fight, uh, or to an area, or to an issue, and say, well, if you devote uh, X number of resources for this issue, that means you have Y minus X for that issue. Well, no, actually, if you if you engage in the right way, and you bring in allies and partners in that process, then actually you may have X Y plus X kind of resources uh, because you're bringing others in. So take the issue of China and competition with China as, as one of those examples. Uh, if you look at uh, the semiconductor and chip and, and other industries where we're trying to compete, prevent China from having the most advanced technologies because they can use that to uh, enhance not only their economic, but much more importantly, their military power, then we can try to do that on our own. But the problem is that the Dutch, uh, there's a Dutch factory that 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 manufactures the uh, systems for the most advanced semiconductor creations. There is uh, there's critical supplies from the Japanese and the Koreans and of course the Taiwanese, uh, who uh, who are uh, home to the most advanced chip production fabs in, in in the world. So 
If we do it by ourselves, there's a limit to how effective we can be. But if we do it with other countries, then we are uh, much more likely to achieve the goals that we're trying to achieve at a cost that is acceptable to us. So uh, I think part of, 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 of how to think about this and part of the debate uh, that we need to have is to get away from this idea that anything I put in uh, to a, a system uh, is something I can't use anywhere else. No, in fact, it may enhance your capacity to deal with the problems that you have. So we'll get maybe to NATO in, in, in a minute, but that's, that's what NATO is about. This whole idea that it's about how much does each country spend, 2% or not 2%, uh, you know, that's an input measure. It's fine. It's one of the things you care about. I mean, if nobody spends on defense, you're not going to have any defense capability. But that's not the point of the alliance. The point of the alliance is that together, that, 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 the, sum, uh, that the whole is much larger than the sum of the parts. And yet, if we keep saying, we will not protect you unless you pay your bills, which is what Donald Trump uh, keeps on arguing. That's a zero-sum view of the world that, frankly, isn't how the real world works and should work. And that's what I think uh, part of the debate on in our election should be about. Mm. A final question uh, about the survey, and it strikes me that you know, on the one hand, you have the Trump Republicans as uh, you know an outlier, a force that clearly is changing its views uh, over time. But even more broadly, as you yourself have said, that there is a a general uh, sort of shift uh, in, in the broader American public, or at least a recognition of some of the problems of the last 20 years, Iraq, Afghanistan, that that America has been involved with. I'm curious what impact you see any of these shifts in American attitudes having on actual policy and vice versa. And Afghanistan's a good example of this because, you know, in policy terms, there are many analysts who could argue that it was disastrous but it didn't actually have much by way of political consequences for the Biden White House, in part, I'm guessing, because of some of the broader shifts you've been describing. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. So I, I think uh, Americans have, uh, you know, as Obama used to say, they're okay with war, but just not dumb wars. Uh, and, and, and clearly what happened uh, from 2001 onwards is that we engaged in two very dumb wars in a very dumb way. Uh, and Americans came over time to appreciate that. After the shock of 9-11 wore off, we, we came to appreciate that we were uh, engaged in a fool's errand uh, and, and had major implications. It led to the election of Barack Obama. Uh, there's no doubt that, uh, that 2008, the election would have been different uh, uh, if uh, sentiment, particularly among young people, uh, against Iraq and, and Afghanistan wars, particularly Iraq at that point, had not been as negative as it was. And it was, you know, Obama had run and, uh, and could rightly say that he had been against the war from the very beginning and warned against it, uh, gave a major speech in 2002. Uh, I think one of the reasons that John Kerry lost in 2004 when he tried to challenge George Bush is because he, as he so famously said, was for the war before he went against it. And, and, and that sort of, well, you know, why not go with the guy who's actually know, know what he wants? It was kind of the attitude uh, uh, at that time. So yes, I do think there are uh, secular changes. In the 1990s, under the Clinton administration, there was a greater sense that one can use military force to bring about internal change in societies, um, that you could use force 
uh, and military means to deal with humanitarian issues, whether it was in Somalia or in Haiti or in, uh, or in northern Iraq uh, or indeed in, in, in Bosnia. Uh, I think by the uh, by the early part of of this century, uh, a consensus emerged, which was strengthened by what happened in Afghanistan and and Iraq, that actually that's a fool's errand, that mm -hmm. people like Colin Powell, who had warned against this, uh, were right, that uh, you couldn't use military force to change the internal dynamics of countries, and that trying to do so uh, could backfire. And I think we are now living in a world in which how we think about the use and deployment of military force is very different. Now, part of it is because we have major enemies, Russia and China, reemerging as major strategic power threats uh, that we are trying to contain uh, and deter. Um, and, and so we don't have the resources to deal with those other sorts of issues. But uh, it is also, I think, an appreciation that that we need to reassess. And I think that's what Biden did when he pulled out of out of Afghanistan. I was in the in the Obama administration when then Vice President Biden was a lonely voice against escalation in Afghanistan back in 2009, 2010. He was always against this. He thought it was the wrong war and we were pursuing it in the wrong way. Uh, and the moment he became president, he said, I'm not going to do what everybody else did and, and prolong something that everybody knows is a fool's errand. I'm just going to pull out. And uh, the manner of what he did is 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 less uh, uh, was of course uh, not as great as, as as it should have been. But the fact that he pulled out was very consistent with where the American public is. You don't hear a lot of people uh, running around saying, "Oh, I would vote for uh, for Joe Biden today," but for the fact that he uh, pulled out of Afghanistan where we should have been. I just don't think that that's where and, the American public and is. And that's despite that's despite the fact that the pullout itself was botched. So um, you're exactly exactly. Although you know, if you look at opinion polling, uh, the, the 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 moment in which Biden's popularity goes underwater is in fact hmm. uh, the reemergence of COVID back in in uh, uh, with the Omicron strain in, in 2021 in August in the summer of 2021 and pulling out of Afghanistan. And he's never recovered as a result. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. That's FPLIVE, one word. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to shift this discussion a bit now to Europe, uh, especially given your experience as a diplomat there. How do you think 
America's NATO allies are seeing surveys such as yours and also comments from Trump that he may not support NATO if he returns to power. A lot of people have been talking of late about Trump-proofing NATO or Trump-proofing Europe. How do you think they're actually seeing this and what can they do? They're petrified. I'll just, it's, uh, and I was in Munich in the, the Munich Security Conference, big annual conference that looks at sort of the the uh, the Davos or Academy Awards for security policy wonks this year. Uh, and uh, there were two, two real big fears that Europeans expressed. One, a very serious concern with Russia uh, and and not just about what was happening in in Ukraine, although uh, at the day, the, the very day that the conference started, two things happened. Uh, the death of uh, uh, of Alexei Navalny was uh, was known and uh, became known, and uh, Ukraine withdrew from uh, Avdivka, the uh, the small town that the Russians had been trying to capture for the last ten years um, in uh, in the Donetsk uh, region. Uh, so Ukraine was very much on people's minds, but it was more than that. It was the idea that the Russians were uh, uh, moving towards a war economy uh, mm -hmm. and very much putting themselves in the position as, as soon as perhaps three years, but certainly within this decade um, from now, to be able to take military uh, action and take the military threat directly to NATO. Uh, so that was one sort of wake-up call, which frankly, I'll be honest, I don't hear and see in the U.S. in the same way. Uh, now, when you are living in, in Estonia uh, or in Finland, or even in Germany, uh, Russia looms a little larger than if you live in in, in Peoria or or Chicago. Um, uh, so it's understandable, but it looms large, and it looms large not just in the East but in Western Europe as well. But then, secondly, um, real concern about about the United States, and and again, two things: one, the fact that the U.S. Uh, Congress was not able to provide and has not yet been able to provide aid to Ukraine. Um, here is a country that led the effort both to prepare NATO and the West for the possibility of a Russian attack by releasing all the intelligence, uh, and then led the effort in providing the military uh, assistance, the, the training, the equipment, the munitions, uh, the intelligence that has allowed uh, Ukraine to, uh, to withstand the onslaught and, and, in fact, push back uh, Russian forces for the last two years. And that country was no longer willing... Uh, because of its own internal dysfunction, its own paralysis, its own dominance of a of one party by a a particular strand of thinking, uh, to uh, to do what was the right thing, even though the Europeans were they were spending on military aid, they were spending on economic aid. So that was one sort of real problem. And then, of course, the meeting happened uh, a week after Donald Trump uh, publicly said that. Uh, uh, that those countries that don't quote pay their bills, as if this is something that is about paying bills as opposed to thinking about their security in, a, in, a, in an integrated manner, uh, that he would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they wanted. Uh, and I think there's a realization in Europe that um, that Donald Trump's influence today is already high, as we can see in the Ukraine vote, uh, or the absence of a Ukraine vote in the House. Uh, but if he were to become president, that the United States could no longer be relied upon and that therefore you needed to think about your own security and your own defense in a way that does not include the United States or that may not include the United States. And I think the wake-up call that uh, they heard is is now there. And uh, my, my sense is that that will have an influence on European thinking no matter who wins this election because mm. 
Joe Biden uh, certainly has a more, much more Atlanticist perspective um, and alliance perspective, but he may be the last one uh, of you as president uh, in that mold and, and that will have an impact. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was in Munich too and very much had a similar set of takeaways. Usually it's Putin who looms large at Munich, but this year it very much felt like Trump was the figure who, you know, wasn't there, wasn't invited, but everyone was talking about. And things have progressed since then. So French President Macron suggested this week that France could send troops to Ukraine. Um, but that was followed by the U.S. immediately saying, no way, it wouldn't allow American boots on the ground. Germany said something similar too. What's your sense of how seriously something like that might be considered by other NATO countries? I mean, Denmark, for example, again, at Munich, essentially said they would give their entire arsenal to Ukraine. Yeah, I think there's a huge difference between troops and, and, and equipment. Uh, and I, I do think there is a, 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 a mood in Europe uh, that um, we, because Europe can no longer rely on the United States, they need to figure out uh, whatever they can to provide as much capabilities to the Ukrainians to to hold the line and ultimately to uh, to change the course uh, of the war in in their favor. Uh, importantly, uh, less reported than Macron's uh, remarks about troops was his agreement for the first time to use EU funding. Uh, to buy non-European produced equipment, which the Czechs have been pushing for. There are artillery shells uh, in other parts of the world that the Ukrainians need. They're just not in Europe. So if you limit EU funding to only buying EU produced or European produced uh, equipment, uh, you, you, you limit what you can use it for. Uh, that was a major um, agreement uh, and I wouldn't call it a concession because it just made sense. But uh, uh, by the, for the French, it was a concession. I see that Macron's uh, statement, uh, frankly, more as political theater than anything real. Uh, uh, the French are are extremely good at uh, uh, at take at seizing the moment to take the political high ground uh, when it suits them. Uh, this is the same president who, uh, not that long ago, talked about the importance of providing Russia with security guarantees, even though it was in the middle of a war. Who tried uh, by flying uh, to uh, to Moscow to prevent the war. I remember sitting on that big white table on one end and 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 being lectured at for three hours. Um, and it's the same country that uh, when I was at, uh, at NATO uh, uh, and we were discussing whether or not to intervene in Libya uh, uh, after a meeting uh, that uh, that the president of France and Nicolas Sarkozy had uh, had called. Uh, announced at the end of the meeting, oh, by the way, my uh, French fighter planes are now in the air starting bombing uh, the Libyans. Uh, and, uh, you know, not that France but could do this by itself. Uh, it just, uh, it, it was uh, the kind of political theater that uh, that the French love. And I see Macron um, pushing that. I, I also note that not only did the Germans say no, but the Germans have been saying for months, maybe the French should spend uh, give a little bit more equipment since their actual contribution to the Ukrainians in terms of direct military aid uh, is significantly less than uh, uh, most others, including uh, Germany, which is the uh, set by far uh, the second largest uh, provider of military uh, aid and, and equipment and economic aid and equipment uh, to, uh, to Ukraine. Ivo, mm. you're such a close follower of the war in Ukraine. And, you know, what I've heard from a lot of Ukrainians over the last few weeks is that things haven't been this bad in terms of, you know, the war front uh, since, you know, the start of the war. 
and morale is down. There's a real sense that they're running out of ammunition. They need more weaponry. They're not getting it. Um, how much of that do you see as, you know, facts on the ground versus Ukraine advocating for more support from Europe and from the United States? And, you know, given all of that, what's your sense of trajectory in the next few months for the war? Yeah, I know. I agree with you that morale and 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 concern and uh, uh, morale is low, and concern uh, about the war is high in 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 Ukraine, and for good reason. Uh, remember, we have not uh, funded and provided any aid, military aid, uh, with new funds since the beginning of last year. Uh, the request to send more funds uh, uh, went up to Capitol Hill in 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 September. It's been sitting there just like our funding uh, uh, issues for our government has been deadlocked uh, by uh, the reality of a, of a, a dysfunctional uh, caucus on, uh, uh, among Republicans on the House side. And so that aid is critical because, frankly, the only ones uh, who have for the immediate future the quantity of artillery shells uh, and, and other munitions, as well as critical air defense systems, is the U.S. It's not that the Europeans aren't doing it because they could. They're not doing it because they can't. They're providing everything they can. They just don't have 155 millimeter artillery shells, uh, of which the, the uh, Ukrainians need a whole bunch more. They're outgunned uh, five to six to one. Uh, when it comes to uh, artillery shells. And that's a big deal when you're in a war of attrition, which is what this is. Uh, this is not a high maneuver uh, war. This is a war of attrition. So uh, there is a reason, and I think it's real, for them to be uh, uh, despondent. Uh, I'm despondent. I think everybody else is despondent uh, uh, and knows that, uh, that, that, that our aid is absolutely crucial. Um, the question is, what can the Ukrainians do in the next two to three or four months vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, you know, on the battlefield? Uh, and, and, you know, by all measures, while the Russians are larger, bigger, stronger, um, they, uh, offense is hard. Uh, and breaking through, really breaking through, as, a, as opposed to getting a kilometer here or, or, a, or a village there, is going to be difficult. And by, uh, by most estimates of, of people who follow this very closely, the ability of the Russians to do anything major before the summer is small, unless the Ukrainian defense collapses, which is pretty unlikely, but of course, always possible. Uh, and now the second half of the year becomes more dire uh, because by that time, whatever reserves are left over will have been depleted uh, and, and Russian forces may have been able to uh, to, to strengthen themselves. So there's two things that need to happen. One, the Ukrainians need to do, which is they need more men at the front. And that means mobilizing more manpower. They have a, uh, a draft uh, uh, that only starts at age 27. There's a bill now being, uh, being uh, thought about of lowering that to age 25. There are also a significant number of Ukrainian men who are not in Ukraine. Um, and it would be good if, uh, if that is one part of it. But the second that needs to happen is they need weapons. They don't, they don't need troops on the ground. Although if we did provide troops on the ground, we'd win the war pretty quickly, uh, except that it might escalate to nuclear war and no one wants that, which is why we're not, uh, getting involved on the ground. But if we provide the equipment and there, uh, which we can with a, with 
the Congress doing what it should do, which an overwhelming majority of Congress wants it to do, which the American people believe it needs to do, uh, Ukraine will have the military aid to withstand the assault, not only now, but through, 20, uh, through the end of the year, and then perhaps be in a position to rebuild itself and, and take offensive action. Ukraine will get this year soon F-16s um, that uh, they have been training on. These are uh, fighter aircraft and the ability for Ukraine to use those aircraft to shoot Russian uh, planes out of the sky as they are part of, of their ability to, uh, to try to push through uh, Ukrainian defenses will make a big difference. So this is not a lost cause at all. Uh, but we, the U.S., need to stand up because we're the only ones, together with the Ukrainians who are fighting, uh, standing in the way uh, of, uh, of, of the potential of, of Ukraine losing. And it can lose the war, and that would be a strategic disaster, not just for Ukraine, not just for Europe, but frankly for the United States. We've been here before. Big wars in Europe don't end with the United States staying at home. They end, but the United States getting involved in those big wars itself. That's what happened in World War One. It's what happened in World War Two. What we want to do is to prevent World War III. Mm, indeed. Well said, Evo. Um, you know, one of the themes sort of underpinning this whole conversation is what Americans are thinking about uh, U.S. involvement around the world um, and how that impacts policy and vice versa. And, you know, the other thing in the news this week is the Michigan primary results. And one of the things to emerge from there was that for President Biden, there was a clear group of uh, Democratic voters in Michigan who voted uncommitted. Uh, many of these people are Arab Americans, many are Muslims who are disappointed with U.S. policy in the Middle East. Uh, they think Biden should be calling for a ceasefire. Uh, they think he could be doing a lot more to prevent the suffering that is so clearly underway in Gaza. And I'm curious how you are watching that. I mean, on the one hand, we've been discussing how U.S. sentiment globally um, is sort of shifting along the margins, the way in which um, successive American governments have thought about their role in the world. I mean, Afghanistan being case in point, do you sense that this year President Biden is looking at those results from Michigan and it might move the needle in terms of how he acts? I mean, clearly the results of Michigan uh, are, uh, you know, not unexpected, but, uh, but uh, a demonstration of deep, deep unhappiness in a certain part of, of the Democratic constituency and indeed in the country uh, about uh, what is happening in Gaza, uh, what Israel is doing and how the United States has responded to it. Uh, and this is both, I think, demographically the case where younger voters uh, in particular uh, are are rightly, in my view, upset about uh, and 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 deeply affected by the uh, horrendous uh, suffering of the people in uh, in Gaza. Uh, none of whom are uh, deserve what 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 they have. They are uh, victims not only of Israel but of course also of Hamas, which which started this war with its own uh, incredible brutality and barbarism. But there is a rightful change in 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 uh, in concern, uh, which I think many in the Biden administration, including the president chair, um, the, the the question that the administration keeps asking itself, uh, and will now I think reinforce asking itself: How do we affect Israeli decision making to get the right outcome? Uh, and the right outcome is an end to the fighting that leads to a situation inside Gaza 
that does not pose a long-term threat to Israel's security that we saw happen on October 7th. Uh, and uh, to date, uh, the Biden administration and the president himself in particular have argued that the best way to influence Israel is uh, by uh, supporting its right to self-defense and trying to use that support as a means to push them into a direction about how they are fighting and more importantly, uh, trying to start to refocus on, on hostage release and, and a temporary, if not a long-term uh, pause in, in the fighting so more humanitarian aid can, can be uh, provided. Uh, so the US vetoed the ceasefire resolution uh, at the UN a couple of weeks ago, not because they actually are against the ceasefire per se, but because they thought that the only way to get to a ceasefire is by having a temporary pause that focuses on hostages and then transfer that into a long-term ceasefire. Uh, that's their strategy. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm glad I don't have to make the decisions that they have to make. Uh, these are very, very tough decisions. Uh, I think the U.S. is dealing with an Israeli government that um, does not always have the best interest of the Israeli people, uh, let alone uh, the people in Gaza uh, foremost in its in, it, in mind, but a government that is focused on its own political uh, interests and particularly the interests of the prime minister. Um, so that makes it devilishly complicated. But uh, this has got to, they got to figure out a way to to stop this uh, and to change course pretty soon because I think it was Tom Friedman today in the New York Times wrote uh, presciently, the view of Israel around the globe is extraordinarily negative. Um, but the view of the United States as a result of that is also becoming increasingly negative. And that's not good for the United States. Uh, it's not good for Israel, by the way. Uh, it's not good for the world. Uh, and so um, I, uh, I, I do think that the time for a, uh, a rethink and to say, is this a government we can work with, this Israeli government, uh, or should we do something else, is, is coming very close. It is indeed. I uh, also, like Tom Friedman, was on the road for the last two weeks outside the country, um, and the uh, assessments of America's place in the world really uh, seem to have gotten worse uh, recently, and that's cause for, for worry. Evo Dalder, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, as always, um, for your thoughts and your wisdom. Robbie, it's uh, great to be with you and uh, great to have uh, your audience ask the questions and, and have this discussion. Look forward to do it again soon. You bet. My pleasure. And that was Ivo Dalder, the CEO of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. As always, if you want to know who's coming up in future episodes of FP Live, head to foreignpolicy.com. As you know, we conduct these interviews live and on video. We often plan them out weeks ahead of time. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin. And the executive producer of FP Live is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. Oh! 
And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.